You're listening to the Create a Life That Is Beautiful podcast with your host, Letitia Ringe, and this is episode number 20. We have a lot of messages that says alcohol's fine, getting drunk's normal, um, life with booze is normal, it's normal to be hungover, it's normal to embarrass yourself when you're drinking, that's cool, it's what you do when you're 20, 30, 40, um, especially in the UK, and So it took a while for me to educate myself that there was another way, that I didn't need to drink to have fun with my friends, to date, to have sex, to go to a wedding, to relax. It took me that much time, so almost two years, to to realize that. beautiful people. Welcome to episode number 20 on the Create a Life That Is Beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Letitia Ringe, and this podcast is designed to inspire, empower, and support you on the journey of uncovering your truth and purpose in the world. Oh, today, my friends, I have such a great exciting, inspiring, empowering interview for you all with the wonderful Laurie McAllister, who is the writer of Girl and Tonic, the blog. Laurie is, as she mentions on her blog, a 20-something self-acceptance and well-being advocate, living life alcohol-free. She's also a yoga teacher and student, a marketing consultant, and very interestingly, a sober pub bartender. This conversation is so exciting on so many different levels. But before I dive into exactly what we're discussing in this episode, I need to let you all know about an opportunity coming up to work with me during a two-hour online workshop that I'm running with my friend, someone who I admire and respect immensely, Kelly Track. Kelly has previously been on this podcast. This was on episode number 16. So if you want to find out more about Kelly, go and check out that episode. So this workshop is going to be for two hours. It's on the 24th of June. You can join from wherever you are in the world. It'll also be recorded. And we're going to be taking you through how we made the leap from working in corporate to creative. This is going to be such an exciting day. I'm I'm already so excited about it. But really, this is everything. We're going to talk through everything that we wanted to know before we took the leap or to, you know, help us take the leap because there's a lot that you just really feel so scared about. You feel overwhelmed. You don't know what how to answer all the hows. So we're going to be taking you through all of that in two hours. And you'll also have the opportunity to ask us questions. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, then please head over to www.letitiaringe.com forward slash workshops, and you will find the link there to purchase your ticket. Oh, so let's now get back to today's episode with the wonderful Laurie McAllister. Laurie and I had such a fantastic conversation. I know that this is going to leave you feeling super inspired. Some of the topics we talk through include, of course, Laurie's journey to giving up alcohol. If you're not familiar with Laurie's blog, Girl and Tonic, she writes about her experience of giving up alcohol, which she gave up at the same time, well, a, a couple of weeks before I did in December 2016. And this was a decision that took her, as she explains in the episode, almost two years to make a lot of um, periods of not drinking and then drinking again before she made that decision. And uh, at the same time as making that decision, she also started her blog, Girl and Tonic. And it's a very successful blog. She's a great writer. 
And she talks really openly and honestly about her experience and journey with alcohol. Before she gave up, she had a very normal relationship, just like I felt that I did with alcohol. She drank, you know, as she mentions in the episode, four to five times a week when she was going out four to five times a week. She didn't drink when she was at home by herself. But, you know, she was sick of her behavior when she was drinking and she felt the pull to try not drinking. And so that's what she did. And she also shares with us all about, you know, self-care and boundaries, but something really, really fascinating that I think is going to help a lot of people listening. We talk a lot about dating while sober and also about different attachment styles when it comes to romantic relationships. So this is super, super, super interesting. I was just so fascinated by this and I really thank uh, Laurie for sharing openly and honestly about this because, you know, we don't talk a, a lot about dating, do we? And so this was a really great conversation on that topic, which I think will help a lot of people listening. We also talk about, you know, what being authentic really is and how that's different from, you know, oversharing or bearing the need to bear it all, how we have different aspects of ourselves and we share these different aspects of ourselves with different people. Uh, And we also talk about the needing of space, the realities of entrepreneurship and why Laurie's making this decision to move back into full-time employment for the time being. So there's a lot here that we discuss and I think you're really going to love this episode. So how about we just go ahead and dive on in? Hi, Laurie. Welcome to the Create a Life That is Beautiful podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to chat with you today. So let's, just to get started, could you tell our beautiful listeners a little bit about who you are and what you're currently creating in the world today? Yeah, of course. So my name's Laurie, as you've already heard from this intro. I am a yoga teacher and a blogger and a writer who lives in Norfolk, um, which if people are overseas, not in the UK, is uh, in the east of England um, and is pretty much the middle of nowhere. So (laughs) I used to live in Hackney in London um, for eight years and then I recently made the move back to Norfolk. Um, It's been a bit of a change but I absolutely love it. A little bit of my story is I used to work in marketing um, in London and I did that for sort of four years and then I retrained to be a yoga teacher and moved back to Norfolk to teach yoga and live with my little dog and just have a bit more work-life balance and it has been pretty great. I have been sober for coming up to 18 months, um, a year a year and five months I think at the moment which was a big driver for that decision. I think uh, in deciding to stop drinking, I looked at a lot of my life and you have a lot more clarity when you aren't hungover every weekend to think what you want from life. So that's sort of me in 30 seconds. Thank you very much for that introduction. So, yeah, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about uh, what was happening at the time that you made the decision to stop drinking. But also, I think it would be really great to let our listeners know what your relationship with alcohol was like before you stopped drinking. Of course. So I always say that I probably for the UK, for London, drank in a pretty normal 20-something way. So I didn't drink every day and I didn't drink in the morning or any of those sort of typical signs that you would have been fed by the media that means that you've got a problem with alcohol. So I just sort of binge drank with my friends at the weekends or when I had a bad day. Um, I would quite often drink, you know, four or five times a week because I would go out four or five times a week. But I was drinking a lot and I wasn't very happy in myself. So whereas lots of people can drink four or five times a week, I think, and feel okay about it, I was drinking four or or five times a week and feeling pretty shit about it. It, This kept building up to the point where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. You know, I probably had that sort of quarter life crisis where... (laughs) I was getting more into knowing more about myself, becoming more conscious about what I was doing, you know, engaging with life coaches and a lot of yoga material online. And 
I came across a uh, blog post on Mind Body Green one day that talked about someone who'd given up alcohol and how it had changed their lives. And that just sort of started a little fire in me, I suppose, or not even a fire, but like a niggling feeling that said, hang on a minute, I could not drink and my life wouldn't be over. Whereas I think before that time, I'd always thought drinking's what everybody does. I love drinking. My identity was quite wrapped up in wine and going out for nice meals and drinking cocktails. Um... So I didn't really know what my life would be like without it. So from that, that's where I sort of began to think about stopping drinking. Mm. Um, I was talking about this the other day and it took me, so if I've been sober 15 months, I think I started thinking about not drinking in, in earnest at the beginning of 2015 Um, I had done dry January and then I found this blog article that I saw and I sort of went down a rabbit hole and finding things like hip sobriety, Holly's um, blog, one year no beer. And I started to engage with people who'd stopped and meeting. I met uh, one lady who I knew had stopped and it took me until December 2016 to actually then stop completely. So during that time, my consciousness was raising on the negative effects of alcohol, but I wasn't quite ready to quit. (laughs) Um, I would quit for small periods of time. I stopped, I did dry January in 2015 and I didn't drink again until I think the middle of March, but then I did drink and I drank a bottle of rosé at lunchtime with my work colleagues to myself. They also (laughs) drank a bottle of rosé each and um, had a bit of a crying meltdown And suddenly realized, I was like, oh, I felt really good for 90 days. And now I feel like shit. Um, But it took a long time for me to sort of convince myself that it was the right thing to do. I think we have a lot of messages that says alcohol's fine. Getting drunk's normal. um, Life with booze is normal. It's normal to be hungover. It's normal to embarrass yourself when you're drinking. That's cool. It's what you do when you're 20, 30, 40, um, especially in the UK. And so it took a while for me to educate myself that there was another way, that I didn't need to drink to have fun with my friends, to date, to have sex, to go to a wedding, to relax. It took me that much time so almost two years to to realize that and that's often what I say to people when they talk to me you know life it it's not an overnight decision I don't think or at least it wasn't for me like some people can just change their mind and the next day be like right I'm I'm done I'm over and in some senses of the world word it does only take one decision it took me one decision one day to say, right, I'm never drinking again. And I haven't since that day, but it took me almost two years of deciding Mm -hmm. or of learning, of educating myself to different ways of thinking. Were there any other periods in those two years where you had, you know, a period of drinking? Yeah. Within those two years, I had quite a few extended sort of bouts of sobriety. I'd give up for a month or a few months. Um, and then I'd drink and the cycle would sort of continue and I'd go back to drinking a bit or a lot. And then I would be like, right, no, enough is enough. I'm stopping. And then I'd start again. And it was sort of this because I had people around me. And I mean, I still have a lot of my friends from my drinking days who are really good friends of mine and our relationships have got deeper. But everyone just says, well, your drinking's fine. You know, you're, you're all right you don't have a problem you just need to drink a bit less or oh that was just a bad night of yours or well you're all right now why don't you try drinking again and (laughs) I mean it it was my it was me saying that stuff too but when you have people around you that are sort of not encouraging it but yeah at times encouraging it it's a lot more difficult I think and then I um went on a night out with my brother actually and some of his friends in December 2016 just met them for a drink more than anything 
and didn't drink for sort of the first few hours we were out because I was like right I'm not drinking again I'm not doing it and then it got to about six or seven o'clock and I was like oh I'm just gonna have one or two and I ended up having four or five and we had a really nice evening actually and it wasn't so much that we had a bad evening it was more that I drank more than I'd intended to didn't do anything stupid which I've done lots um but on this occasion I didn't do anything stupid I had a nice evening I got home fine but I woke up the next day feeling pretty shit realized I didn't I didn't need to drink on that night to have a good time and at that point I was like right enough is enough I'm not drinking anymore and on that day I started my blog and my Instagram because I was like if I'm gonna do this I need some accountability and I need something to do because I'm sure you'll agree or people listening will agree or understand this, alcohol can take up quite a lot of time. So when you're not doing that sort of drinking hungover cycle, you have a hell of a lot of free time to do other stuff. So I think starting the blog and sort of making myself accountable really helped me, especially in the early days. Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. That's so interesting that you started your blog uh, when you decided to give up because when I gave up, which was around the same time as you, it was I, it was December 2016. I was in New York on holidays just before Christmas and New Year's and I had just before I left London gone to a work function and ended up drinking more than I wanted mm -hmm. and I woke up I was hungover I was very upset with myself that this had happened again and I went okay how can I come up with a way to be able to hold myself accountable but also hold the people around me accountable to my decision and so I thought, okay, mm -hmm. well, I'm going to announce it on social media publicly to all my friends and colleagues and, um, you know, treat it as an experiment. Like mine was for a 12 month experiment. That's how I pitched it and ran it. And, um, I, that was, I think, really important to helping me stay accountable for the 12 months, but also reducing the social, uh, pressure in, you know, even if it was intentional or not to, you know, change my mind, you know, people still would ask, uh, you know, just go on, just have a drink, but nowhere near where it would have been um, had I not done that. Was that your experience too? Yeah. So, well, I started my, um, my blog and Instagram originally was sort of separate from my real life. I didn't out myself as such on my personal accounts for a while. Um, Actually, now I've changed my Instagram name, so it's my name. But to begin with, it used to be called Girl and Tonic, which is the same name as my blog. So I start, actually felt a bit vulnerable when people started to find my Instagram or my blog that I knew in my real life because I could be really open on Instagram and the blog and not worry about what people thought. But then when people from my real life started finding it, I was like, oh, hang on. Mm -hmm. This is a bit strange. And also I made a lot of friendships from Instagram. So those people would know me completely as the me I was. And then my existing life would sort of like they were just learning who I was becoming, if that makes sense. I found the accountability really important, um, especially in, as I said, those early days. I found, you know, being able to post if I was having a really bad day or if I wanted to have a drink or if I was going to an event and I was worried about, you know, maybe being pushed into drinking or bullied into it. But now sort of my life has merged as one. And everybody knows about the blog and me not drinking. But to some people, me as like a sober person, that's me. And then I have other relationships from before where they know me as me. And then the sober thing is like, an added extra. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was thinking about that today, about how we're different people to different people. So even though I am completely me all the time, I have people in my life that want to talk to me a lot about sobriety and m my mental health and, you know, how I am as a whole. And then I have other people in my life that want to talk about Made in Chelsea and, <laughs> um, you know, like just general day-to-day -day stuff. And both of those I need. And both of those are great. Um, but it's interesting how things begin to merge once you're pretty out there in yourself. And I sort of hate the word. 
I have a love-hate relationship with the word authentic um, because I think it gets used a lot on Instagram by people that aren't necessarily being authentic. Um, <laughs> but that's just what I think, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's true for anybody else. But authenticity to me is sort of being your whole self and I am still these days my whole self uh, across my blog and my Instagram. There's certain things I don't share. Like I don't really share much about dating or my private life in that sense. But my emotional self, authenticity to me, especially in sobriety and in sort of accountability, isn't, oh, my life is great all the time. This is what you should be doing. It's, you know, I have a pretty nice life these days. I really do. I've worked hard to make a life that I don't need to escape from it doesn't mean I don't have a bad day and it doesn't mean that I think that you should spend your whole time journaling and meditating and going to yoga every day and drinking a green juice like I as much as anybody else will have a day when I'm feeling rubbish and I want to lie on the sofa and watch seven episodes of Suits and eat crisps (laughs) and I think for me, my Instagram has allowed me to be accountable and authentic in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And people respond uh, more to that or that real authenticity. You can't always be, you know, can't always be the highlight reels. And that's what yeah. actually makes people, I think, step into the comparison mode when we are expecting that you know that's what we're that's all we're going to see on Instagram. Uh, so I think when people are real and vulnerable and share, you know, when the the things that aren't as nice are happening, people really are attracted to that because they're like, oh my gosh, me too. I feel that way as well. And you know, the thing is, like, we need the contrast always. You know, these the negative feelings that we have, the fear, the um, sadness, the frustration, they all have a like serve a purpose they're there to let us know when we need to maybe pivot or maybe we need to just rest you know our body starts to um, break down when we need to change things as well and it's all there as an opportunity to learn from and I think we've got to stop looking at things as like that's positive that's negative that's acceptable that's not acceptable and um, as humans there's so many different facets to our personalities and to you know one day uh, even just looking at it through like with women with our cycles and the four different phases you know I feel like I am four different people throughout the month and I think that's really normal and once you are okay to embrace all of those people that you are um, that it I think um, there's just a lot less stress there's a lot of relief so I really love you talking about that. Thank you so much for sharing. You're, yeah, you're very welcome. And I realize this is a podcast, so no one could see me nodding, but I was nodding in agreement with what you were saying. Yeah, I completely agree. And you had Claire Baker, didn't you, on the podcast um, yeah. recently? And she, I only really, I haven't worked with her, but I really follow what she's saying. And yes, embracing that there's four sort of different seasons for me every month has been a game changer. I want to do more work on that, actually, um, but I love it. And I've been working with this idea recently. I saw a quote, it's actually by a yoga teacher called Judith Hansen Lasseter. And she says, I know you can do more, but can you do less? <laughs> and I was like, when I heard that, I was like, oh, game changer. Um, because I don't know about you, but I'm self-employed at the moment. And that's actually going to change, which maybe I'll talk about in a minute. But I work for myself, which the reality is I work all the time. I don't stop. Like I stack my days. I run around. I teach a lot of yoga classes. I also consult. If I'm not consulting, I'm working on the blog. If I'm not working on the blog, I'm working at my mum and dad's pub. Um, If I'm not doing any of that, I'm planning a yoga class or planning my next retreat or not retreat, um, planning my next sort of workshop. You know, I'm, I'm busy a lot and it's not, it doesn't become a badge of honor so much. I don't think when you're self-employed, it just more becomes this life. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, I don't stop. I don't do any of the things that used to make me feel good when I had a nine to five, when I felt like I had more space. So I have been trying to remember that 
a lot recently, you know, I know you can do more, but can you do less Mm -hmm. and see where I can pull back from overworking or over investing myself even and overstimulating myself to be a bit more still and be a bit more quiet. And that actually doesn't mean always things like meditation for me. It can mean, like I was saying earlier, sitting and watching Netflix and not having my phone on me because I also find that I'm attached to my mobile. Um, I'm checking my emails. I'm checking my Instagram. I'm replying to people's messages. And for me, um, not much of my business comes from my blog or my Instagram. I'm not a coach. Um, I write and I do make some money from writing and I make a bit of money from sponsored posts and things like that on the blog. But the that side of my work is more of an emotional investment mm. and more of an emotional return. But I can get trapped in this cycle of feeling like I have to always be on mm. and stepping away from that and allowing yourself to be a bit more still gives you space that you don't realize you even need. And I think even for people that are in a nine to five or a nine to six or, you know, 50 hour work week, we underestimate how much we are constantly stimulated and how much that affects what we're doing day to day. Because for me, I've especially found now I do have that time out where I do watch TV or read a book or listen to music. I've got really into listening to albums recently, like the whole way through. Oh, wow. Picking a new album and listening to it from start to finish. That used to be something we did, you know, 15 years ago. But now it's all Spotify playlists and suggested music. But actually, like sitting down and listening to an artist and listening to the music in the way they planned it without any distractions can be really fun Mm. um and you don't need your phone for that or you know it's put away whereas I think if you can just put your phone down for 15 minutes a day and just have some time to yourself I mean maybe lots of people do do that but it's a new thing for me (laughs) no I think that's a constant challenge but I really love that suggestion about looking at just going putting on an album and actually listening to it from start to finish that sounds really wonderful to me Actually, so a big part of my coaching is all about uh, embracing your feminine essence. And for Mm. me, that is all about embracing your feminine energy. And a lot of that is about making space in your life for rest and um, just to be, you know, adding more play. But the space is what's so important because we need that obviously for sustain to sustain ourselves and for this concept of you know sustainable creativity that Claire and I were talking about in our recent episode but also just for you know like general energy you know you, we can't always be action 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 but what's really important to me is that when we give ourselves this space that's when we give ourselves the space to receive creativity to receive inspiration and also to be able to hear and connect with and listen to our intuition which if we have to if we're waiting for logic to um, get us to where we want to go we're going to be waiting a long time if we're not relying on our intuition it just I feel like it really allows us to cut through a lot of the the crap a lot of the fluff And um, yeah, so it's really interesting that you're talking about doing less because I think that's really important. And also if we, there's so many things that we feel like if we look around at what other people are doing, we feel like we need to be doing all of those. And that can even include our self-care. And then self-care becomes this big onerous list of things that we need to do just to be able to care for ourselves. But by doing that, we're not actually caring for ourselves anymore because what we really need is the space and that's what's so important. So that's really interesting. It's also really interesting that um, with the alcohol, you found it was taking up a lot of your time and so you start filling your time with other um, things that, you know, fill you up and then it's – and now you've got to start noticing, you know, where you you need to make free time again. You know, this is something that we can sort of replace other things with. We always need to be sort of um, putting ourselves back in back in balance when it comes to our space in a world where so much is being thrown at us. Yeah. And I agree with you on what you were saying on self-care and it just being a bit of this buzzword and everyone's like, oh, I need to do my self-care today. And it can become this overwhelming thing that you're like, oh, I'm doing stuff because I think I should do it and not because it's what I need. And I think we 
self-care is a much bigger thing than having a bubble bath you know and I've discovered that recently and not recently but you know I've been implementing that more recently in terms of self-care for me is like taking my tablets every day and eating a decent meal and putting myself to bed on time so I um have been going to therapy for probably just over a year and my therapy my therapist is actually on maternity leave at the moment um who has a baby I mean come on uh no I'm very happy for her and she's you know she's doing really well um but we were talking about this concept the other day about self-parenting so when you grow to rely on alcohol from quite a young age so you know if you start drinking it's sort of like anywhere up to being about 18, which let's be honest, most people do, you learn to parent yourself with alcohol. So depending on your personality, but I'll speak for myself. So alcohol comes in and it becomes your like bottle. Like if you're a baby, your mum and dad would give you milk if you were crying. So alcohol comes in and becomes this thing that you use to Mm -hmm. self-soothe. so you use it in a way if you're having a bad day or a good day, you use it to make sure you're okay to stabilize your emotions. So when you take alcohol away and you no longer do that, you have to learn to parent yourself again. Mm. So you remove what you used to use and it's this whole new world. It's why I think people sort of sometimes stop drinking and they're like, Whoa, who am I? Because from a very early age, well, for some of us, we use alcohol to define who we are. And we never learn to look after ourselves properly without the alcohol. So Mm -hmm. I got to the point where I was like 25. And I know people stop drinking a lot later than me sometimes or a lot earlier. And I was like, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm, I'm not drinking, but how do I look after myself? And the self care does come in there. But it's more than self care. It is like self parenting. It's like, putting those boundaries in place to look after yourself where you don't need to pull or take alcohol to do that job for you anymore. You have to do it for yourself. Mm. So some of the things I've been working with sort of in the last year or so is around boundaries and around boundaries I have for myself and boundaries I have with other people and getting to know myself much better. So like relationships, for example, I've, I was single when I stopped drinking and I have had small, short relationships since then. Um, but learning about myself in a relationship sober is so different to learning about who I was when I was drinking. So different versions of me, I suppose, would happen when I was drinking. Now I deal with all of the sort of ups and downs of new dating and meeting people and rejection totally sober but it's a real learning curve and it's a real lesson in boundaries self-parenting and sort of dusting myself off and being okay being me Mm. so yeah that's been a it's an interesting journey yeah I think the dating world um is a great test on how great your sort of self-love is and that's what I always say to my clients I work with a lot of clients on dating and um, attracting a long-term committed you know partner and it's all we're always working on self-love you know what is your relationship with yourself like first because you are going to deal with rejection and you and also you don't want to be going into a relationship where you end up losing yourself either so having that solid foundation is really important but it is it is a it is a whirlwind the dating game it's really you know there's a lot of and i think especially for women we put a lot of hope very early on um we get emotionally attached a lot earlier on than um, maybe our male counterparts so um it can be a matter of not of having boundaries even there of not investing too much emotionally like too soon so yeah I love how you mentioned that yeah I think it's a difficult one in terms of that as well I'm actually reading a book at the moment called Attached um, and it's about different attachment styles for romantic relationships in the same way there's a thing called attachment theory 
which is big in psychotherapy, um, in the way children behave, like if they're left alone, if their mother leaves them alone, they'll they'll behave in certain ways. And um, the book applies this research that's been done to romantic relationships. So you have three different attachment styles in romantic relationships. You've got a secure attacher, an anxious attacher, and an avoidant attacher. And secure attachment secure people who have secure attachments male or female find it easy to give the other person they're dating what they need um find it easy to communicate what they need and find you know relationships sort of a happy comfortable place to be and that's 50% of the population but then 20% of the population is anxious attachments which is sort of what you were just saying there which is when you attach very early to someone you get invested a lot um and I'm an anxious attacher I have learned and I did sort of know this it's things like you're completely secure on your own and you're comfortable being on your own and then the minute you're in the beginnings of a relationship the relationship is all you can think about Mm. and it sort of becomes this big thing in your life and your whole behavior can change um and I always put this down to me just being a bit weird and needy in relationships um and that you know I'm I'm the sort of person I want to be on my own or I want to be sort of three months into a relationship, know that you like me and I'm happy. The dating thing gives me so much anxiety. And um, this book really outlines that, you know, I'm not a weirdo. One in five people feels like me. And it's where you need somebody in a relationship to be sort of, they need to be a secure attacher. They need to talk to you and like assure you that they like you and then once you know that someone likes you and you know you have fairly constant communication you're then at a level where you're sort of happy and functioning normally but if you are dating someone who's an avoidant attacher I'll have to give you the book for the show notes because I'm not sure how well I was summarizing (laughs) this um but if you're dating someone who's an avoidant attacher and the avoidant attacher doesn't want to get doesn't want to commit too easily um always wants to have an area of space, even if they're in a long-term relationship, probably gives you mixed signals, you know, can't decide if they really like you or they probably do really like you, but they don't want you to be close. If an anxious attacher is dating an avoidant attacher, the anxious attacher is going to spend their whole time on sort of tender hooks that can't quite settle, is always waiting for the person they're dating to sort of reassure them. And if they don't get that, it you sort of nosedive. Mm. Um, So this book is teaching me a lot. And in terms of also not just seeing dating as being a search for the one, you know, I'm going to meet someone, he's going to turn my world upside down, and we're going to live happily ever after. It's also about in those early stages of dating, working out if the person you're dating can give you what you need on an attachment level. So figuring out if they are an avoidant attacher, if their likelihood is that they're going to sort of mess you around. And if you've got that anxious style, knowing that, okay, they're not right for you. You might really fancy them. They might really like, you know, light you up in that sense. But making the decision for yourself, having that boundary that says, you're not going to make me happy long term. I need to date someone who is sec- who has that secure attachment style. And that is quite science, like, you know, qu- quite sciencey woo woo way of looking at it. But it's something I'm really working with at the moment as I sort of do want, I think, a long term, happy, comfortable relationship. But I know for myself, I either need to be on my own or dating someone that it looks like we're heading towards that. The dating game, dating multiple people, not being sure where I'm at doesn't do me any good. And these are like conversations that I can have with myself and with you sober when I was drinking I couldn't think about this stuff (laughs) I just think oh yeah I've had two glasses of wine you'll do or you know we've been on a date we seem to be getting on really well now because I'm a bit drunk I don't really have that boundary for myself I don't know what I need I know myself so much better now that I can have that sort of conversation and also sort of lay down those boundaries for myself so you know I can talk to the guy I'm seeing and say okay, if I'm seeing you, I'm not seeing anybody else. I'd rather you didn't. Um, and I need from you to know, you know, that you you like me and 
that we're going to speak semi-regularly. Like I'd like to talk to you, not like on the phone every day, but you know, I want to hear from you regularly. I don't want to go a week at a time without hearing from you. And if that doesn't work for them, fine. And I'll let that go. But if you told me two years ago that I'd be behaving like this in a relationship, I would have laughed at you. (laughs) I would have gone, what? No way. I just want him to like me. And I'm worried that I'm doing stuff wrong. That's an anxious attacher thing. You worry the whole time that if somebody stops talking to you or leaves you alone or decides they don't want to date you, it's because you've done something wrong and you try and fix yourself. I understand now that that's part of my personality, but I also get that it's not me. Mm. You know, I'm just here being me. And if someone finds that attractive, great. I don't need to change myself to, for them to, to attract them. You know, it's not my job to be attractive to someone. Yeah. It's my job to be secure in myself. And if the, magic happens and it happens. Yeah, that's such a beautiful, thank you so much for sharing that because actually if we are trying to, you know, um, attract someone by being someone else, that facade's only going to hold up for so long before it all comes crumbling down. So the most important thing that we can do is to show up and be ourselves. But I think the way that you've described this attachment theory in, in this book, which I'll have to check out, this is um, very much in alignment with what I understand when it comes to dating, but I hadn't looked at it in terms of whether you're um, have an anxiety attachment, because I think that for me was my norm as well. So I've always, I learned personally through my own dating experiences and being with someone for five years who I think was in that um, avoider category and um, wasting a lot of time and energy in that, that I really needed someone who was secure. And um, that's why I, th- I found that it's so important when we are looking at, well, what, what do I want from a partner, like long-term, what is going to be a long-term sustainable relationship with, for, for me? Um, it is someone who has the ability to be able to commit and also be emotionally available and physically available if that's important to you as well. And these are things that we don't norm, uh, a lot of us don't put on our list. We're just, as you said, um, you know, if the, if the guy likes us or if the person likes us, then that's enough for us. And then we um, use them to, you know, fill ourselves up and that's where problems happen. I used to work in family law for about six years. So I've seen wow. a ton of dysfunction. I've seen a lot in relationships, how they fall apart and also with my own um, family. So yeah, this is, it's, it's serious, but if we can really, like you've said, you know, go in and really focus on, you know, this is me, you either, um, this is either right for you or it's not. And, and sort of pull yourself out of it, you know, like be a little bit more objective about that. And I think that's about boundaries. As you say, you know, this is, this is boundaries around dating around your, with yourself and others. Yeah, I think as well, I mean, we can stop talking about dating in a minute, but I think it doesn't get talked about enough, really. Um, The chances, especially if you're dating when you're a little bit older, and I'm like classing myself, I'm 27. So I'm not saying older, I mean, you know, you're not dating the person that you met at school, the likelihood is you're going to meet an you're going to meet more anxious, uh, no, you're going to meet more avoidant attachers, because the secure attachers are in relationships, Mm. because they meet people, it works, they stay in it, they're happy, boom. So you're more likely to meet someone who's an avoidant because they can't quite settle into a relationship. They're, you know, set, set on finding the one. They might make that clear that you're not the one. <laughs> um, <laughs> but so in a dating situation, you're quite likely, especially because it suits um, avoidant attachers, apps suit avoidant attachers, where they can meet loads of people and they can... Um, you know, they can date around and they can look for their, you know, special person. And there's nothing wrong with an avoidant attacher. Um, It's just if you're an anxious attacher, which I am, which sounds like you are, and Mm -hmm. quite a lot of it, it it's often thought that women are more likely, although that's not necessarily true. You don't, if you're an anxious attacher, you don't want to date an avoidant attacher because it will make you miserable. Um, So it's just looking for sort of those secure attachment guys which all women depending on um your sexuality but it it's finding them and also you might find those sort of secure attached men or women boring because you're used to sort of getting 
the highs and the lows from an anxious attacher. So uh, from a, I'm getting all my attachments wrong. But so <laughs> if you're dating an avoidant attacher, you are used to them sort of going quiet on you. And then when they message you saying you like you, you're, you're like, oh, yay, like they like me, I feel great. And you know, they're going to give you such mixed signals that you get sort of hooked on those highs. So when you meet someone that's stable, that, you know, just says, yeah, I like you, this is good, this is going well, and is quite open and honest with you and secure in themselves, secure in their relationship status, might have dated someone for sort of 10 years before, you know, you're like, oh, I'm not getting the fireworks. <laughs> that is so true. We're addicted yeah. to the drama of the, the drama, relationship. And yes, this is why I'm always talking about sustainability, long-term sustainable, who is going to be that? And we, and neither of you in that sort of dynamic is going to be able to withstand that in the long term because there's yeah. so much energy dealing with those extreme highs and those extreme lows. But one thing, just one last thing on dating that you mentioned was about um, alcohol and dating, because actually with a lot of my friends and um, peers, the number one objection I get is when people are single and they say, how am I going to date without, with being sober? I, I can't do that. I need to be able to have a couple of drinks to go, you know, for my confidence, but also because they're going to be drinking. And I think this is all about, you know, sort of needing to um, try and uh, attract the other person, you know, like do whatever they want to do. Doing, yeah. um, but that's really, so how, um, it, could you talk a little bit more about like sober dating? Yeah. So I definitely had those same objections as your friends, peers, and they're the objections that I hear a lot as well. Um, a few things have helped me. One, now that I live in Norfolk, you have to drive everywhere. Mm. So I think um, drink dating is a very city centric thing um, because if I'm going to go on a date with someone, the chances are I will date them in Norwich, which is the nearest city to me or like town. It's a city though. And that's a 25 minute drive. So even if I was still drinking, I would be able to have one small glass of wine out and then I'd have to stop because I'm driving home. So in Norfolk, I found that that expectation is a lot less to drink on a date because you can't get drunk. Um, and one small glass of wine isn't really enough to take the edge off for your confidence. London was different for me. Honestly, I, to begin with, found it very hard. I started saying um, before I met the person I was dating that I didn't drink. So we'd match on Bumble or Tinder or we'd meet in real life or whatever, however we met. I would say, just so you know, I don't drink. Don't mind if you do, but I don't drink alcohol anymore. Half the time, that might mean that the guy then unmatched me, but at least I'd lost them then rather than, you know, a few dates in. And then I found that I was nervous before the date, but then I was always nervous before a date whether or not I was drinking. What becomes really apparent when you get to a sober date is whether or not you like them, whether or not you can be yourself around them. Because I think sometimes what alcohol helps us do is become this different version of ourselves so I was quite sort of confident um I would have felt quite sexy when I was drinking a couple of glasses of wine I was definitely a bit louder than I am naturally <laughs> so the person I am without that I can sort of settle into being the real me and on a date quite quickly I can notice with a guy whether or not they're drinking um if I'm being me so I can see if I can be myself around them and then not need to pretend to be someone else. Mm. And that's taken time. Um, I've probably been on 10 first dates in the last sort of 18 months, maybe a few more actually. Um, but it takes time to know that, but you quite quickly do know if you can. And I now, because I know I'm nervous before a first date, as I think everybody is, um, well, actually I, I know not everybody is. Some people enjoy it. Um, but for who I am, I don't. I'll now, unless a first date is terrible and we have nothing in common, you know, I don't find him attractive in any way, I'll now go on a second date with them. Whereas I think when I was drinking, well, a lot of the time I'd get really drunk and then never want to see them again anyway because I'd embarrass myself or... <laughs> definitely you know knew I was drinking to get through the day 
now that I'm sober and I date, I meet someone as, and I approach it as if I was meeting a friend. Like, you know, we were meeting for coffee. I've never met you. If me and you met for coffee, I wouldn't be particularly nervous. I'd be a little bit because I don't know you, but I wouldn't think if you didn't like me, it was because I wasn't worth anything mm-hmm. and because I was ugly and you know, I wasn't pretty enough. All these things that come in your head. And then as long as the date's gone okay, I'll always go on a second one because I find that I can be quite nervous on a first date. And by the time we meet again, I'm more relaxed. Mm. So they're sort of my tips on it. I think further down the line, when you date someone, it becomes a lot more normal to not drink. Although I have had relationships in the past that were completely centered around alcohol. Mm. Um, And every date we went on, we'd, you know, get quite pissed and it would go from there. But now, you know, my life doesn't revolve around alcohol. My friendships don't revolve around alcohol. So my relationship doesn't have to either. Mm. It's where I approach it from. It's still work. Um, And especially what I was talking about, the anxious attachments earlier. I still feel when somebody goes cold on me or decides they don't want to date me, or even if I decide I don't want to date them, I still internalize it and think that that's something I've done wrong Mm. or is a problem with me. And I can quite often spiral into thinking I need to change everything about myself. But I can see that from the outside now. And what I don't do is cry over a bottle of wine with my friends. Mm. I think, okay, wasn't right. Not necessarily on to the next one. Quite often I do retreat for a little bit. Um, But I can see it with more clarity more clarity now than I could and I think that's a gift of being sober or just not being reliant on alcohol like I know plenty of people that can have a glass of wine here and there so they wouldn't necessarily Mm. drink a lot on a first day anyway um and I think the connection you get with someone when you're sober is so much more reflective of what you actually need or what you don't need then if you've drunk on the date, you're being someone you're not really and you have a false sense of intimacy. Mm. And especially if you're an anxious attacher, like me, um, <laughs> you crave that and intimacy is what you want. I want to be intimate with someone, not, and I don't mean sexually intimate, I mean like emotionally intimate, mm. quite quickly. Alcohol gives you that because it lowers your inhibitions and you're quite quickly, you know, quite touchy. Um, but being sober or being teetotal on a date shows you whether you're comfortable with that. And I'm definitely more reserved these days in my dating style. It takes me a lot longer to warm to somebody. But then when I do, I know it's because I like them mm. and it's not rosé. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing so openly about your dating experiences, because I think that this is like super helpful. And as you said before, it's not something that's uh, spoken about enough. And especially when it comes to dating and, and being sober and, and acknowledging the struggles of that. Um, so thank you very much. I really, I didn't know that our conversation would take this turn, but I think it's gone in the direction that it needed to go. It's what people need to hear. So I, yeah, I really love it. Thank you. If you don't mind, could we just shift slightly now? Because I wanted to find out about your yoga teacher as well. And so you started, was that um, you started uh, after you had quit alcohol? So one, yes, on the dating. I didn't think we were going to talk about that at all, but obviously (laughs) it is what we talked about. And hopefully it'll be really helpful for people because sober dating is terrifying, but it doesn't have to be. Um, (laughs) Yoga teacher training. So I actually booked it before I stopped drinking. Um, I booked my teacher training a couple of months before I stopped drinking, but by the time I started it, I was sober. Um, as I said, at the very beginning of our chat, I had, you know, been becoming more conscious of my relationship with alcohol and my need to stop drinking earlier. Um, but I hadn't actually physically stopped when I booked it. I am so glad that I'm a sober yoga teacher because I do not know how people teach yoga classes hungover. Um, I'm (laughs) sure plenty of people do, but I don't think I could have done it. It requires so much sort of emotional energy that I think trying to do it hungover would have been a bit of a a nightmare for me. 
Um, so I did my training. I started my training in January 2017 mm-hmm. and I qualified in May 2017. And I've been teaching just over a year now. Um, I went to being self-employed and sort of teaching as more of my income rather than it being supplementary in August 2017. So I was still working when I did my training um, and I used to work full time in marketing and I gave my notice in and I gave up and I moved back to Norfolk sort of August, September last year. And so since then, I've been doing, you know, I teach between 10 and 14 yoga classes a week now. And I write on the blog and I do a bit of other freelance writing and I do some consulting. And that's how I sort of make my living. And it's pretty cool. That's awesome. And did you say that you're moving into um, a paid employment? Yeah, so I am, and this is sort of hot off the press, new news. (laughs) Um, I've just taken a full-time role again. It's remote, so I'll still work from home. Um, And I'm going to probably teach four yoga classes a week with that. So I'm going to drop some of my classes. It sort of was an opportunity that got offered to me from having a coffee with the – with the guy that runs a business and felt like the right thing at the right time loved this sort of stint of self-employment and if I was honest I wasn't looking for a role but I'm sort of a believer of everything happens for a reason and I suppose quite fatalistic and because it all sort of came so easily and because it's remote I've accepted it more on the basis of what I was saying before you know I know you can do more but can you do less And I think this will help me to do less and help me, you know, expand as a yoga teacher from the sense that I'm enjoying teaching. I've got more time to plan and I can live my life, you know, around my work week, which will still be at home and I'll still have all the benefits of that. But I'll have the security of a role. And I think that when people dream about working for themselves, there's also a lot of benefits in having a nine to five. Yeah, absolutely. It's not for everyone. And uh, also, I think if you if there is any um, self-development work or any sort of um, issues when it comes to like mindset, they're going to come up like massively when you own your own business because there's nowhere to hide. It's all about it's all you. And so you, you can't you know blame anyone else for, for not feeling fulfilled or not getting things done. So that can be really confronting to some people. And, and like you said, you have to be super disciplined in keeping um, maintaining space in your day. So I love, I think that's a really great example for people um, because I think there is this dream of being self-employed, but it's not for everyone. No. And I'm, I actually am enjoying it and I would have happily stayed self-employed. Um, and it's been a decision for me to make, to accept the role and go back into the role, which I'll start in the middle of June, but uh, it's the right decision for me right now And also, I know that I can do this self-employed thing. So if I don't like it, I don't feel trapped in a role anymore. I don't feel like it's my life. I've got a life and I have interests outside of work that will remain yoga teaching, writing, being sober. I just appreciate that this job or any job will give me evenings and weekends and time to see friends and more headspace to think about myself and what I want from my life rather than worrying about my accounts Mm. and chasing invoices. And there's definite benefits to both. Um, I have loved working for myself and long term, I mean, maybe I will work for myself again. I don't know, but I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm 27. Mm. I can do what I want. Like I'm going to work for probably another 45 years. So, you know, I might as well try it. I think more of me would have been, I would have felt more regret having not taken this new role and saying what I'm doing than taking it and seeing if it works. And then if it doesn't work, I'll do something else. Mm, I think we get trapped in lives where we feel like we have to maintain what we're doing or there's no other way. And in reality, as long as you have, you know, enough money in the bank for three months rent, do what you want. Mm. Like nothing is ever secure or stable. A full-time role isn't secure or stable. They could make you redundant. You could lose your job. Self-employment isn't secure or stable, but 
we've got these lives we might as well do things that we enjoy yeah that's, that's a bit uh, over you know <laughs> overarching but that's where I'm at at the yeah. moment yeah, I love that you're going with what's flowing to you in the present moment too and that we're also talking about really here the fact that we don't need to marry our careers. You know, we are all we all want to grow. That's what makes us fulfilled. And so we need to constantly be just pivoting and changing as our interests change and following those and exploring those and then not marrying ourselves to whatever that identity is so that we're free to choose what the next, you know, expansion and evolution of ourselves is. Is. So thank you so much for that. My final question for you is just, do you have any advice for someone who is maybe listening to this right now and they're thinking, I really want to find fulfillment and meaning in my work, and um, but I just don't know where to get started? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> I would, okay, so the first thing I think you need to do is look at what you enjoy about what you're currently doing right now. So whatever you're doing right now, whether you're working for yourself, whether you're working in a, you know, like a corporate job or whether you're working in a cafe, sit down and see what you actually like about your role right now, because there will be something. You won't hate every single part of it. You might really like your boss or you might really like the structure. You might like a constant paycheck. You might like that they give you a budget to do some education. You know, you'll find things that you like about what you're doing now. And then separately, write a list of everything that you love to do outside of work. You know, the things that put you in flow or even things that you find flow with at your role. So I used to find I used to work in marketing, still will work in marketing. (laughs) And there were certain bits I hated about my job. But there were things that I could do, which I loved, like I really loved to write content. So I knew that I liked writing and I knew I wanted to do more of that. And then you just have to decide whether, you know, you you need to pivot and do something slightly different in the industry you're in. You need to change some stuff about the role you're in, but you can stay in that role. Or you need to take a step back and do something entirely different. But I'd say you don't need to, you don't have to quit your job to be happy. And that's a big part of what I had this conversation with my brother the other day I think lots of people think they need to quit their jobs and go traveling to find themselves and actually a lot of the time it's much easier to find yourself and do the work from the security of a role from the security of a job and even if you do say have this dream that you want to become a yoga teacher or a painter or a coach It's easier to have a bridge role to help you there rather than all of a sudden needing to make all of your money from your dream. Um, Have you read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic? Yeah, I love that book. Yeah, me too. But she shows you, or I think that book shows you that your paycheck doesn't have to define you. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be your dream. And I mean, I can speak from experience here. I love teaching yoga. I really love it. It's my favorite thing in the world to do. Did I love it more when I taught three classes a week um, outside of my corporate job and I didn't worry about how many people were coming to my classes and I didn't worry about, you know, getting likes on Instagram or needing to fill up workshops versus now when I teach 14 classes a week and I really rely on it for about 50% of my income? Probably I did love it more back then. Mm. Um, And therefore I'm excited to be going back to that. But I really, yeah, that, that message that, to find fulfillment from from your work, you don't necessarily have to do what looks like a dream job on Instagram. Mm. You know, I have some friends that are accountants and have, you know, the most boring jobs in the world. (laughs) What you would see, you know, you don't ever sit, you know, I'm in an office with 100 people, here's my desk. It doesn't look like that. But they're really happy and fulfilled because they get what they need from their job and they live the rest of their lives. You know, I think the notion that uh, what what's it that they say that if you if you never want to work a job a day in your life, do a job you love or something. Um, that's not the right phrase, but it's around that. I think that's sort of um, ambitious and a bit lofty because whatever you do for work, it will be work. 
you'll love elements of what you do as a coach. I love elements of what I do as a yoga teacher. But I don't love doing all the admin and the marketing and the um, social media and the expenses and the chasing invoices. It's all work. And even if you do something you love, I wouldn't, I think I was naive in the early days to think that it it would never feel like work because it does. Mm. It's fun and I don't resent it. I think if you hate your boss, then you should leave that job because you'll never love working for someone who you don't like because essentially you're making them money. But if you don't mind what you do and you find fulfillment in places, then there's nothing wrong with having a side hustle and having a nice life. Yep. You don't have to dive in. Yep, so I agree with so much of what you've said and I think, you know, it's it's um, up to the person and what suits them and everybody's different and, um, you know, structure is really important but so is space and we don't want to squash our passions and our um, hobbies and our um, interests by then having to, you know, have that pressure of having to earn and support ourselves fully from them, um, especially if it's not flowing entirely in like an easeful way that feels good to you. I think that's really important. So thank you so much, Laurie, for coming and speaking to us today. Uh, I'm sure your advice and also your story, just sharing so openly about the dating, but also your journey without alcohol and about finding yourself and all of that is going to be really helpful to our listeners today. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You are so welcome. It's been great to be here and to chat. And I think if anybody um, that's listening does like want to chat further, then just drop me a message. I'll always reply to people's Instagram DMs and emails. So if you're stuck and you feel like you have no one to talk to, then you're welcome to send me a message. So there it is, my friends. Thank you, Laurie, so much for coming on to the podcast and for sharing your experience with giving up alcohol and also about dating as a sober person and also as a woman that was incredibly helpful and I know for you guys listening that that's going to help you as well so if you want to connect with Lori you can do so over at her blog girl and tonic at girlandtonic.co.uk. You can also find Laurie on Instagram at Laurie V McAllister. And the show notes for this episode, which will also include all of Laurie's details, are over at www.letitiaringe.com forward slash Laurie McAllister. So what's going on for me next? Well, my friends, I am off to Chinca Terra to enjoy a lovely holiday and but don't worry, I'll still be back next week with another episode for you all. And in the meantime, I just want to remind you about that workshop that I'm holding with Kelly Track. I don't know whether we'll be doing this ever again. It is a really great opportunity. The workshop will also be recorded just in case you can't make the time. But as I said, I really encourage you to be able to attend because you also have the opportunity to ask questions and it's going to be awesome. So I can't wait to help more people make that move from corporate to creative because I think it is such a wonderful, fulfilling career. And I'm so glad that I made the leap and I'd love to help you take that too. All right, my friends, I will see you next week with another episode to help you unlock your truth and purpose. Have a great week. Bye.